Hey, while you're, uh, while you're getting settled, I'll go ahead and tell you where we're going to be today, and then i got something I want to share with you. Romans chapter 4, as we continue our series in the book of Romans on Sunday morning, Romans chapter 4. So, I, I shared this with the folks on Tuesday night, but I wanted to share it obviously with you all, and then I'll be sharing it for a couple weeks. We are at a place as a church right now where we have a piece of property that we would like you guys to pray about. Okay, um, we are at that point and uh, really want you to be praying that this week uh, that the folks who own this property would be open to our proposal to them that we are going to make. Let me tell you where this piece of property is. First of all, it meets almost all the criteria we've been looking for since we felt God moving us to start looking for a place we could call our own. Basha has been awesome for the first four plus years of the existence of this church, but we know God wants us to have a place we can call our own. We're going to be able to do even more ministry uh, than we can do right now because of meeting at a school. So I'm going to give you directions from where we are now to this location. If you go down Riggs this way and you head west on Riggs, you will eventually come to Gilbert Road. If you take a north on Gilbert Road from Riggs and go north on Gilbert to Chandler Heights Road, then you make a left turn or go west on Chandler Heights Road. This piece of property that's eight acres sits on the north side or on your right side, and it's four-tenths of a mile down Chandler Heights Road once you make that turn off of Gilbert. Okay? Let me repeat that. Go down Riggs till you get to... Because what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to go by and take a look at it. Okay? Um, And pray over it. And all that kind of good stuff. So go down Riggs till you get to Gilbert. Go north on Gilbert till you get to Chandler Heights. Go west on Chandler Heights or take a left there. Four-tenths of a mile on the right you will see this nice piece of property. So anyway, be in prayer about that. If we get to a place where we uh, feel led, uh, and certainly we believe that that is going to come eventually, uh, I'd like to ask you folks to just sort of set aside even a day or a week of prayer specifically about this and all of that. So we'll get to that. Anyway, some exciting stuff going on here at the church, but we're so glad that you are here today. And We want to continue our series in the book of Romans. And ever since we started this series, as we talked about the fact, this book is such a foundational book for Christians. It really is the book in the Bible that God has given us to sort of develop our worldview. And everyone has a worldview, whether you're a Christian or not. It's what you and I use to try to make sense of life. To navigate life, it's sort of that scaffolding within our minds that we build over the years to try to interpret things and make sense of things. And the book of Romans is our book as Christians that really lays this all out for us. It, it helps to us to see life from the reality that is God, who is the greatest reality in the universe that he created. And what is that reality? Because Paul has already told us, if we're not going to live in the reality that is God, the reality that he has created, then we're going to either live in a world of denial, 
denying what reality really is and never really dealing with reality, or else we will begin to make up an imaginary, make-believe fantasy world that many human beings live in today that, again, never really talks about reality, never deals with it. And one of the great things about Romans is that he talks about the great subject of salvation, And yet there are many today, even Christians or those who confess to be Christians who go, I don't really understand salvation. I don't even know why, what am I saved from or what am I saved to and why do I need salvation and what is all entailed in this great subject of salvation. So Paul's covering all that. And last week we, you know, ended up talking about again, why we need salvation so desperately as a human being, and then what salvation begins to look like. And, and hopefully the things that Paul shares, especially for us who are Christian, who have a personal relationship with God through Christ, can begin to even appreciate our salvation more. It, we can understand the depths, if you will, the breadth of our salvation to a degree we never could before by understanding the truths revealed to us in Romans that might inspire and motivate us to even greater heights in our walk with God, uh, in our service for God, in our life with God every day. And so last week, Paul talked to us about this great subject of justification. What's this mean? And we talked about the fact that this is a legal term in Paul's day that was from a judgment standpoint, as like a great judge. And, and it is the declarative act of God whereby he, for once and one time only, declares a person righteous before him. In other words, not guilty, acquitted of all charges. And we gave you the picture last week. It would be like the God of the universe, us standing before him as judge, And instead of judging us, he lays aside his judicial gavel, he lays aside his judicial robes, and he actually takes our punishment that we deserve upon himself and says, I'll take the punishment. I'll be the substitute. I'll take on myself what they deserve. And Paul says, don't you understand that when a person comes to faith in Christ, that's exactly the transaction that takes place? That the God of all the universe, that all human beings stand guilty before, because Paul says, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. That God is willing, by His grace, undeserved gift, He's willing to grant us acquittal. He's willing to say, you're not guilty anymore. You stand before me righteous. Not in our own righteousness, as we saw last week, but in the righteousness that is provided for us, In Jesus Christ. And Paul said, that's what it means to be justified. That's what it means to be declared righteous before God. Now, Paul, in his concluding argument, which begins in chapter 4, is going to pull out from the Old Testament two witnesses to sort of use as his concluding argument about what's taking place and why it takes place and all of this. And, and he's using Abraham and he's using David, two of the most beloved figures in the Bible. Whether you have a Jewish background or a Gentile background, everyone knows about Abraham and David. And here's what he wants to teach us about today as he builds on what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Notice what he says in chapter 4, 
of Romans verse 1. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh, has discovered regarding this matter that he's just talked about in chapter 3? If Abraham was declared righteous by the works of the law, if Abraham could be good enough, could, could merit salvation, could work for his salvation, then Paul says he has something to boast about, right? If, if let's play that argument out, he has something to pat himself on the back to congratulate himself. In fact, I love this in verse four. Notice drop down to there. He says, now the, to the one who works, his pay, his compensation is not credited due to grace, something that is undeserved. He says, but due to obligation, a debt which is owed. In other words, Paul says, if I, if I actually work for something, then that's not a gift. That's not grace. That's something that's owed me. I mean, think of it this way. How many of you all in here say got paid by your boss in the last week or two? Raise your hand. Did any of you run into your boss the day you got paid and said, thank you so much for paying me today? If you did, I'd like to talk to you after the service. No. We normally don't behave that way, do we? Why? Because we worked for that. We earned that. We, we don't go in and say, oh, thank you, thank you, as if it's somehow undeserved. We're like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm entitled to that because this is what I did. This is the compensation. So Paul is saying, if somehow Abraham was able to work for his salvation, for his justification, then that's not grace. That's not a gift. That's something he can congratulate himself for. But Paul's going to say, that's not the way it was. And yet, as we even shared last week, for thousands of years now, man has thought that the way I get to heaven, the way I have a relationship with God predominantly is by being a good enough person, by doing enough good works. Listen to these results just a few years ago from the Barner Research Group that they asked churchgoers. Now, I realize just because someone goes to church doesn't mean they have a relationship with God. But still, it means they're in a spiritual environment where, to me, they should be taught and know better than this. 50%, one out of every two churchgoers said this, when they were asked, how do I get to heaven or how, how do I have a relationship with God. 50% said that there was the belief that if people were generally good or do enough good things for others, they will earn places in heaven. Now let me ask you about that. The problem with looking at that rather than the reality of what the Bible teaches is, and this would be a question I would ask somebody who believed that, when do you know you've done enough? When do you know you've done enough? In other words, because you're basing it on that, you still as a human being never really know whether you've secured your place in heaven. You have to live by assumption rather than assurance. And God is writing his truth to us 
And one reason why Jesus says the truth will set you free if you embrace it is because God's truth gives us assurance. It gives us confidence in our relationship with God and our standing before God so that we don't have to live our whole earthly life trying to assume, am I going to make it or not? Am I good enough? Have I done enough good things? That's why John writes in 1 John 5, 13, these things in the word of God are written so that we might know we have eternal life. And that knowledge and confidence of having eternal life and possessing it right now isn't coming from our own cockiness or our own pride because we think we're good enough. It's based upon what God has said. And we're placing our trust in what God has said. That's where our assurance comes from. That's where all of our assurance is going to come from in our life. Otherwise, we're just living by assumptions rather than by assurance. And God wants his people who embrace him to have assurance, to have confidence as they approach life and as they approach eternity. And we never know when that time is going to come. Even this weekend. Uh, Lisa and I had a very dear friend of ours who was a leader in our church back in the state of New York who suddenly at 62 years of age just dropped dead and went to be with Jesus. I'm glad that I know, and if I would have been back there to preach his funeral memorial service, I know where that man is. And it's not based on the fact that Russ was such a good person or did enough good things. It was based upon his relationship with Jesus Christ and that one day God declared him righteous. Works are not a means of salvation from a biblical perspective. Works are the result of salvation. We do good works and we serve and we minister, but not because we feel we have to. To somehow earn God's approval or gain or merit salvation. We do it because we want to. We do it because we love to and we love God and we want to and we love each other and we want to do it for that reason. A whole different motivation. Which is why then if you go back up to verse 3. I love what Paul says here. He says, what does the scripture say? When all else fails, why don't we look and see what the Bible says? See? Well, this is what I think. Well, isn't it important to get into the Bible, the scriptures, and see what do they say? And here's what the scriptures say. Abraham believed God. First of all, that's, let's stop there. That's important. The word believe here is an important word. Because we already talked last week about the fact that the Bible says that demons believe and tremble. But obviously, we don't think we're going to see any demons in heaven someday. Demons aren't declared righteous before God. So what's the difference between a demon belief and the kind of belief that Abraham had that God requires from us? It is a belief of surrender. It's a belief of submission. The word believe means to fully rely and rest in God and what he has said. Fully. Not partially like, well, God, I'll, I'll sort of count on me to make up the difference between, you know, you and me and all that we talked about. No, it's fully relying on God and resting in him and what he said. That's what belief is. And therefore, it is a belief that revolutionizes our life and, and allows us to follow this God. That's what belief is. That's the kind of belief 
that Abraham had. And, and it's, it's a kind of belief that just takes God at his word. It's the kind of belief or faith that is an attitude rather than an act. Because in that, Abraham was turning totally away from himself and he was turning totally to God and to what God promised. That's faith. That's belief. That's what this word in the original Greek language means. And that's what Abraham did. And when Abraham or anyone else does that kind of belief, notice what the Bible says. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The word credited is a great word. It's one of my favorite Greek words. It's the word logizomai. I love to go around the house just saying that word. Logizomai. It's an accounting or bookkeeping term. So any of you that are in the financial world, you will appreciate this. It's a word that means to permanently place into one's account something. That's what it means. In other words, so God goes from sort of the argument through Paul of the courtroom last week to now an accounting or bookkeeping office, if you will. And Paul says, here's the wonder of our salvation. We're going to talk about this part of it in a minute. Paul says, in salvation, God not only forgives or takes away all of our sin off of our account and puts it on Christ, but then God transfers into our account where there's nothing. He transfers his entire righteousness to our account. So that when he looks at our account from his perspective, there's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What God fully requires. Do we deserve it? No. Did we earn it? No. But the Bible says when we believe and trust what God says, that's what he does. He credits our account. And again, this word means to permanently place into one's account Christ's righteousness. So today, if you are here and you have trusted in what God said and you've trusted in Christ, you don't have to worry about my account with God. Is it good enough? Have I done enough? No. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then God at this time, whenever you did that, took all of your sin, all of my sin that we would ever commit and put it on the account of Christ who died in our place, who was our substitute, and took all of that, and then in that place, put all of his righteousness on my account. Wow. When we begin to grasp that, it's like, no wonder Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, when we stand before God, we stand righteous, but not in our own righteousness because we saw last week and in weeks previous, it doesn't matter how good we try to be. We can never measure up to the perfected standard of God himself. The only one that can measure up to that is the sinless, spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So when you and I accept Christ, we stand before God, never in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness that is Jesus, that is transferred to our account through what? Through good works? 
No, through what? Belief. Abraham believed God and God credited his account permanently with the righteousness that is what God fully requires. That's how Abraham came to have a relationship with God. It wasn't through being a good person. It wasn't through being one of the people in the hall of fame of faith that we, you know, sometimes we put these Bible characters on pedestals. Like, oh my goodness, they're so much better than us. No, Abraham had to find salvation just the way any other human being ever did. He had to understand that he was undone before God and that there was no way he could ever be good enough before God. And he believed what God said and God credited him, his account, as righteousness. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 5. But to the one who does not work, To earn salvation, but instead believes in the one who declares the ungodly righteous, his faith, his personal trust in Jesus, taking God at his word, again, is credited as righteousness. And notice something very important also in that verse. The Bible teaches that God will declare the ungodly righteous. In other words, what Paul's saying is, There's no way a human being can try to clean themselves up and present themselves as good in some way before God. No. We come just as we are. All of it. All of our sin, all of our failure, all of it. And we just give it to God and say, God, save me. And God will. Then that wonderful Christian life and growing to know more about God and walking with him every day and being part of a fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ where we can mutually encourage and grow with one another. That all takes place after. But at that moment, God says, just come, Jeff, just like you are. That's why for years and years and years in the Billy Graham crusade, what would be the song that Billy Graham crusade would end with? Just as I am without one plea. Because that's what it is. I don't come to God saying, God, I'll give you what I got. And then you make up the difference. No, there is no difference. I come with everything, all the yuck and everything. And I just give it to God. Because here's the thing. The Bible says God loves me in spite of the fact that I'm ungodly. And the word ungodly, by the way, just means to be unlike God in thought, word and deed. I'm about as much unlike God in my unsaved state as anybody could be. And Paul talks about that. Paul, I just come saying, okay, God, this is, this is who I am. And the Bible says, but God loves me enough to say, I still want to give you my salvation. Just receive it. Don't think that you can try to reform yourself or make yourself good enough. I love you in that state. I don't approve of everything you've done. I don't approve of maybe where you are right now, but I love you and I just let me save you. Then we can work on taking care of all the stuff after you come that way. That's what Paul says. He declares the ungodly righteous and credits that. Now, next, he sort of gives an interlude here and he wants to talk for a little bit about David. And he wants to even quote from David because everybody, again, to some degree, puts David on a pedestal. But we also, if we know anything about the life of David and 
the biblical record of David, we know, oh man, he messed up. He really messed up. And yet notice what David himself said. And this is a quote now that Paul is giving from Psalm 32. He says, verse 6, So even David himself speaks regarding the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And by the way, David wrote Psalm 32 after his adultery with Bathsheba and after his murder of Uriah. The word blessedness is a really cool word. It means a state of well-being independent of external circumstances. That's the place God wants all of his children to get to. Is to realize that we are blessed, favored by him, and that that blessing and favor is totally independent of external circumstances. That's why we can, as Christians, have joy even in the midst of suffering and trial, because happiness is based on circumstances. Things going good, I'm happy. Things going bad, I'm discouraged. I'm down, I'm depressed, I'm in despair. But the joy of the Lord, this gift that God gives, is independent of circumstances. Because my relationship with God, me being declared righteous, me being credited with his righteousness, me having my sins forgiven is something that's not based on external circumstances. It's something I carry with me all day long, every day I live. And for that, no matter what I'm going through, I can at least wake up every day as a Christian and go, thank you, God, you've forgiven me. Thank you, God, I know you personally. Thank you, God, that if I were to drop dead of a heart attack right now, I know when I wake up, I'll be with you, Jesus, in heaven. For Paul went on to say, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5 Assurance, not assumption, not living my whole life trying to be good enough. And then being frustrated every time I fail, because we'll never be good enough. And how do we know when we've been good enough? And folks, this is prevalent in all world religions. I don't care what religion you're talking about outside the Christian faith. The one thing that makes the Christian faith unique is this word we're going to talk about in just a minute, forgiveness. And and the thought of having the assurance and confidence that my standing before God has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. I'm just trusting in that. Let me give you an example. Talking to a Muslim who many times, like other religious people, make Christians, or at least those who profess to be Christians, look pretty sad because they're dedicated This Muslim prays five times a day. This Muslim has been to Mecca. This Muslim during Ramadan is sacrificial up to your eyeballs. And yet if you were to ask this Muslim, do you know you have eternal life? Do you know you're going to make it into heaven? Their answer would be to you if they're honest. I hope so. That's what they'll say. I I hope I've done enough that I get there. Oh, my friends, we don't have to live that way. Because our standing before God and entrance into heaven isn't based on what we've done. It's based on trust in what God has done for us. Which is why David even said, verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. 
This word forgiven is a great word. It means to totally be detached and separated from. In other words, David is saying, if we understand forgiveness, here's what God does. When he forgives me of my sin, he totally separates, severs, detaches me from that sin. That's why in other places in the Bible, it talks about God separating our sin as far as the east from the west, throwing our sin into the depth of the sea. He totally severs us from our sin. That's forgiveness. He lifts us. Out of our sin. In order for us to be able to move on. That's part of the meaning of this word forgiven. Can I say that's why it's so sad when Christians don't even understand the concepts about their own salvation. And why they'll stay in a state where they've never by faith accepted God's forgiveness for what they've maybe done in the past or what they're involved with now, and so they can't move on. They keep going back to that or spinning around it because somehow God can't forgive me for that. Listen, David, who did what he did, is confidently saying, not because of him, he's saying, look, God forgave me. And I, even though I did horrendous things, I was able to move on in my relationship with God for the rest. Did I have to suffer some consequences for that sin? Yes. The Bible certainly teaches that there can be consequences to forgiven sin. But is that sin forgiven? David would say, absolutely, my sins have been forgiven. God detached me from them when I believed in him like Abraham did so that I could move on. Some Christians never can move on from their past because they don't really understand the forgiveness that God wants to give them and has given them in Christ. And that's why I don't even like to use the terms when I'm talking to Christians about learning to forgive yourself. Because technically, biblically, that's not really true. It's not a matter of learning to forgive ourselves for things. It's a matter of by faith accepting the forgiveness that God has already granted us in Jesus Christ. It's just simply believing again and trusting in what God said. God said, I will forgive you. And when you and I accepted Christ as our Savior, we've got to understand from God's perspective the transaction that was made. He took all of our sin. All past, present, what we will do in the future. And he placed that on Christ's account. And that's why Christ died as our substitute. He took my penalty that I never would. There is no condemnation, Paul says, to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then, at that same moment, as we've learned, Paul says, God then takes his righteousness and puts it permanently on my account. That's how David could have the assurance that his sin was forgiven. Not because David had done so many great things, but actually even in his failure, he knew that God would be true to his word. We sang so many songs today about God being faithful. That's the bedrock and foundation and anchor for everything that we live by and believe in is that the reason we can live that way is because we're taking God at his word. We're trusting in what God said because it's dependable, it's reliable, it's trustworthy. Blessed are those whose sins, lawless deeds are forgiven. Notice the next one, whose sins are covered. That's another aspect of forgiveness. 
It literally means to cover over as like with a shroud. And in this word covered, there is the concept of removal of guilt and anger. Oh my goodness, Christians even, again, suffer with this. So many Christians think that God is angry with them. And, and, and when a Christian does something wrong or sins before God, and something bad happens down the road, what do many Christians default to? God is punishing me, and He's angry with me for that, and He's getting me back. Folks, if that's your thinking, then you've not truly understood what it means to have your sin covered. God's not angry with you. And God doesn't want you to have a sense of guilt. Because guess why? God understands guilt in your life and my life actually separates us from God. It keeps us from God. It, it puts distance between us and God. When people feel guilt, then they stay away. That's true even in our interpersonal human relationships, isn't it? You or someone else feels guilty about something that happened in a relationship? Do you hang around each other all the time? No, you avoid each other. That's what guilt does. That's why God doesn't want to see guilt in his children's lives. Because he wants to be a part of our life all the time. And he knows guilt puts a wedge between us and him. That's the difference between guilt and conviction. Yes, conviction comes when I sin from the Holy Spirit of God, but conviction is what drives me to God because conviction reminds me that when I sinned, even more than I hurt some other human being, I hurt God. And I hurt the God that did all this for me. I hurt the God that died for me. I hurt the God that took my sin on himself. I hurt the God that credited my account permanently with his righteousness. I hurt him. And therefore, I want to make it right. I want he and I to be okay. And that's, that's a whole motivation out of love. See, when there's love in a relationship, the two people even love each other so much, even if there's a wrong that's been done, that love is going to drive them to, I, I want to get this right. And that's where conviction comes in. Guilt keeps us from God. Conviction brings us back to God. And that's why David wanted all of us to understand, not only are our sins forgiven, but our sins are covered, completely covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, verse 8, Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will never count sin, Jeff, that's the 10,563rd time you've done that. No. We may count our sin. God doesn't count sin. And the word count here means more than just count how many times we've done something. The word literally means to keep thinking about, dwelling on, pondering. In other words, David says, get this. You may think about your sin. God doesn't think about it. He's moved on because he wants you to accept the forgiveness through Christ. He wants you to understand it's been covered. He wants you to understand. He's not up there in heaven going, oh, that's all I think about is all the mess ups and foul ups that Jeff has done in his life. No, he doesn't. So if you and I are always thinking about it, then either 
we have to have our thinking renewed, as Paul's going to talk about later in the book of Romans, or else we're listening to our accuser, the devil, who is always throwing our sin and failure up into our brain. And at that moment, we've got to say to the devil, get behind me. We've got to resist him, strong in our faith, as James and Peter talks about. And we've got to say, my sin has been forgiven. My sin has been covered. And God isn't thinking about it. So get away from me, Satan. I'm moving on. God certainly wants us to learn from our failure. He wants us to learn from our mistakes. He wants us to learn from our sin so that we don't keep making the same mistakes over and again. But God's attitude towards his children is don't don't stay defeated. Don't let the devil keep kicking you when you're down. Take my hand, child, and let's move on and let's keep on going on this wonderful journey together as God and his child. I love that verse in Proverbs that says a righteous man falls down seven times but gets back up every time. And it's not that we're not going to fail even after we're saved. It's not that we're not going to fall. But it's that we understand the relationship that we have with God that God has forgiven us, He has covered, and He's not counting our sin and we can get back up and we can hopefully accept all that by faith and move on. And know that our life is not defined by our failures and by our sin. It is defined alone by God. So then Paul says this. In verse 9, I think in some ways, even though he's written this to the Christians in Rome, he understands that in Rome, such a metropolis, the center of the world at that time, because the Roman Empire was in charge, that there would also be many Jewish folks in that church as well. So I think that's part of the reason why he writes about Abraham and David and also now why he's going to insert this whole thing about circumcision in. Because he wants to also make this point to Jew and Gentile who rely on signs and symbols and things external rather than what's on the inside. He wants to, he wants to bring them to this understanding. He says, and when Abraham was credited... With righteousness. When Abraham had his sins forgiven, when Abraham believed God and he was put into a right relationship with God, was that after he was circumcised or was that before? And from verse 9 through verse 12, basically Paul's argument is you realize it was before he was circumcised, right? You realize that. In fact, if you go back into the book of Genesis, 25 years. After Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, it was 25 years later that he was circumcised. So circumcision really didn't have anything to do with it, even though even in Paul's day to the Jew, if you were circumcised, you were good. You were on your way to heaven. You had a place there. If you weren't, oh my, too bad for you. And Paul says, look, just like any other external thing, that's external. If there's no real reality on the inside, then it doesn't matter what those signs and symbols are. They mean nothing before God if the heart isn't right. So notice what Paul says. Is this blessedness, verse 9, then for the circumcision or also for the uncircumcision? For we say 
Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited to him? Was he circumcised at the time or not? No, he was not circumcised, but uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Paul's saying, first of all, it was a sign. It was an external symbol of an internal reality. If there was no internal reality there, then the external symbol didn't mean a thing. Do we have that problem today? Have we had that problem as human beings down through the ages? Again, as far as measuring our standing before God? Absolutely. Because you talk to some people today. How do you know you're going to heaven? How do you know you have a right standing with God? I've been baptized. External symbol. Now listen, you and I, you know, if you've been in this church any length of time at all, you know, I think baptism is very important. Water baptism. I think it's very important. It's a step of obedience for a Christian. But baptism doesn't mean anything if the heart hasn't changed. Nothing. It's just, a, it's like, it's, it's a symbol. It's a sign. God cares about the heart. If he has our heart, then the symbol means something, if you will. The sign means something. But if not, then it means nothing. Or you ask somebody else, how do you know? Well, I go to church regularly. I'm, I'm, I'm a good member of a, of a local church. Again, that's important. You know I think that's important. That doesn't automatically mean anything. Go back to the thief on the cross, who's a great example that Jesus gave all human beings of all time to settle the issue. The thief on the cross didn't have time to get baptized, didn't have time to do one good work, didn't have time to join a church, didn't have time to read a Bible, didn't even have time to pray other than to Jesus. Nothing. And yet Jesus said to him what? When he placed his faith in Jesus to save him, he said, today you'll be with me in where? Paradise. Because his heart was right with God. See, Paul's saying, guys, you're putting too much emphasis on the whole circumcision thing or the whole baptism thing or the whole church membership thing or the whole, you know, I serve God or I'm in this ministry or whatever. Again, all that's wonderful if the internal reality of the heart is where it should be. And then Paul goes on to say, he uses the word seal, which is a little bit different than sign. Because Paul says, here's why God wanted you to be circumcised. First of all, there were physical benefits for that. But second of all, he treated the sign or seal of circumcision like he did the rainbow back in Noah's day after the great flood. It was to be a testimony to Abraham that God had given him the promise and that he would keep it. In other words, it was a reminder to Abraham, God keeps his promise. God said, if I just believe in him, he will credit my account permanently as his righteousness. I believe God. I believe. It was assurance. It was reassurance that God gave. Just like God gave to Noah. Noah, I'm going to set a bow in the sky. And every time you see that rainbow, you're going to know that here's what I promised mankind. I would never totally destroy the earth with a flood ever again. There's the testimony that I can be trusted. That's what the word seal means. Too many people down through history have trusted in signs rather than the Savior. 
And what Paul is saying today is, if your belief, if you're, if you're standing before God, if you're thinking you're going to get into heaven, if your assumption that you were to die today and you would go to heaven is based on anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ alone, then Paul says, you need to revisit that. Because the only one that can bring us into a right relationship with God is Jesus Christ and a personal relationship with Him. And when that happens, Paul says, oh my goodness, the blessedness of that. Because I can live my life free, not trying to earn something that I could never earn in the first place. And I can live my life knowing that if I strive to be a good person and to serve God and to love God and to love others, it's never because I am doing it out of obligation or feeling like I got to make up the difference or I'm not going to make it. Because I know, not based upon my performance at all times, like David, but I know that God told me When I believed in him and took him at his word, my sins would be forgiven. My sins would be covered and I wouldn't think about them anymore. And folks, may I remind you, that's in the past, all those words. So that if you're here today and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, I want to just one more time, let's go through this so that we can get it. Every sin you've ever done, Every sin you're presently doing and every sin you will do to the day you die has been forgiven and covered. And then this empty account over here that's got nothing in it, nothing. God took his righteousness and placed it permanently on my account. Do you know that you know And are you living in that today? That state of blessedness. That state of well-being that everything between me and God is good because of Jesus Christ. Independent of external circumstances. And if the circumstances of my life start to go downhill, i got to stop going to that place where somehow God is getting me back. Punishing me. Angry with me then I don't understand what forgiveness and covering is all about. Our last song we're going to sing today is such an appropriate song. You know it's one of my favorites. In Christ alone. That's it, folks. Are we trusting in a sign? Are we trusting in something else? Are we trusting in the Savior alone for everything we are and everything we will ever have? Let's stand and close in prayer. I know I've run over a few minutes today, but this, what we're talking about is so important. It deals with eternity, folks. So I I don't want to rush this at all today. I want to ask this question. Every head bowed, every eye closed, please, out of respect for one another. Sir, ma'am, you're here today in this auditorium. You've heard the word of God, the word of truth. 
do you know? Do you know what your standing is before God? Do you have that assurance? Was there a time in your life where, like Abraham, you believed God? You took him at his word. You trusted in Jesus personally to save you. And your account was credited, as Paul says, as righteousness. If not, if you're not sure, hey, that's okay. Because maybe the reason why you're here today to hear this is so you can finally settle that and be able to move on and accept God's forgiveness and get rid of the guilt in your life and be free in Jesus. If you want to know Jesus and you want to know that you know, then all you have to do today from your heart, not anything external, not any ritual, not any rite of a church, not any sign or symbol, from your heart, all you have to do is say, God, I believe. I believe that I stand in desperate need of salvation and of a Savior, and I know that Jesus Christ is the only one that can save me. And I'm not coming trying to clean myself up and be reformed and and get myself to a more acceptable state. I'm just bringing all that I am, whatever it is right now, to you. And I know, God, that you say, "You you will save me. God, I thank you that I don't stand before you in what little righteousness I could bring you because it is not righteousness at all from your standard. That the reason Jeff Royce knows that if I were to die today and be in heaven with you and that I know I have a relationship with you, I'm assured of that, is because I stand in the righteousness that only Jesus could provide for me. May all of us know that it's in Christ alone we stand. It's in Christ alone we live. It's in Christ alone that we thrive. Lord, help us to sing this song with meaning today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.